Church, I'm excited to bring to you God's word this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Judges, um, as you read, chapter 8. And uh, the title of my message this morning is Disappointing Leadership. Disappointing Leadership. And I want to start off by speaking to you a little bit about um, my life years ago whenever I was in high school. When I was a senior in high school, I had a great passion for God's word. I loved the Bible, and I tried to teach it to as many people as I could. I found it easy to learn scripture and fairly easy to understand it. God's grace was active in my life. And so when I graduated from high school, I wanted to go deeper into the Bible. I also wanted to become a gator. I applied to and got into the University of Florida. And at the same time, I asked my youth pastor if I could lead one of the Sunday school classes at our church. And he kindly said yes. And I found myself a freshman at UF teaching Sunday school in addition to being a college student. And I genuinely loved the Lord. And I loved being a college student. I loved going to UF at that time. And despite my passion for the things of God, I found it challenging to remain zealous to the Lord while being surrounded by those who had other priorities. By the time my freshman year ended, I'll never forget a summer camp that we went to with the youth, and I was able to be around my seventh grade uh, guys, my little uh, kids who I was teaching in Sunday school, and that was just this time of, for me, tremendous conviction. It was this summer that God would show me a part of my heart. I led Sunday school, that Bible study, all year long, but when I was on campus, I was like so many other students who walked the University of Florida's walkways. I lived like the world on campus and like a Christian at church. There were so many times where in my life, much to my regret, I was indistinguishable from the world. And that temptation to compromise was and is a very strong desire. How difficult it is to do what the Apostle John tells us in 1 John chapter 2 when he says to be in the world but not of the world. And this tension that I felt in my heart and my life is the same tension that we're going to see with Gideon here in Judges this morning. You see, Gideon was mightily used of God. He had a passionate heart for God. He desired to make sure that he was doing things God's way and he wanted to follow God's will as much as possible in every step he took, whether that step was great or that step was small. But he also compromised. He, like us, found it difficult to finish well. So read with me again, Judges chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. The word says, Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us? not to call us when you went to fight against Midian. And they accused him fiercely. My first point this morning is Gideon's reign. Gideon's reign. We're going to talk about Gideon's reign and specifically look at Gideon's revenge. The first thing he tries to do when he's trying to get this revenge is appease the Ephraimites. 
This morning, we're going to baptize. And so because we're going to baptize, I'm going to like really go through this uh, passage really quickly to some extent. But I'm going to try to dive down deeply into a handful of sections in these words of God's words. So please go back and listen to Daniel Espy's sermon. He began us with Gideon. He began that first message. Kevin last week continued the story of Gideon. And today, I want to land the plane with Gideon and conclude his story as a judge. So let's do this. Let's look at the Ephraimites and this desire that they have with Gideon. They become upset with Gideon because Gideon didn't call them to the battle. And so what Gideon did was he stroked their ego a little bit, and he made them feel better about themselves. And this section shows the beginning of these miniature battles that Gideon is about to start fighting within Israel, and he's missing the larger battle that God had called all of the Israelites to, to fulfill his will. Gideon in verses 1 through 3 is trying to settle his countrymen down as they felt slighted by their participation or their, their lack of participation in this battle. But what they didn't know is what we know in that God wanted to take 300 soldiers and he wanted to rout this Midianite army of 135,000 soldiers. That way it was crystal clear that the only person that could have brought this victory was God. So God took that army, he whittled it all the way down so that these 300 soldiers could destroy the 135,000 of the Midianites so that he alone could get the glory. So Gideon says, listen, you guys are great. We didn't need you to fight in this battle. But then Gideon goes on after appeasing the Ephraimites to avenge his family. He avenges his family. Next, we see these two kings of Midian who tried to flee from the battle that was waged in chapter 7. Zeba and Zalmanah attempted to retreat to safety after the battle, but Gideon and his warriors pursued them so that they could be hot on their trail. But as he's going after them, he comes up against two obstacles. The first obstacle is he wants help from the men of Succoth. These Israelites refused to help Gideon because they were afraid of the Midianites. They were afraid that the Midianites would win and that they would seek vengeance on them. And so they refused to help Gideon. And so Gideon then goes to uh, the men of Penuel. He asks for their assistance. They're also Israelites, and they also refuse to help him as well. They have fear, and this fear stops them from giving assistance to Gideon and his 300. And again, Gideon promises that he's going to retaliate. He told the men of Succoth, I'm going to retaliate against you. The men of Penuel, I want to retaliate against you. If you don't help us now, we're going to come back and destroy you. And so he goes. He finds these kings of Midian, and he returns and he enacts revenge against those men of those two cities, his own countrymen, his fellow Israelites. And so Israelites who failed to do Gideon's will were treated like enemies of the state. And it's important to note that God is noticeably absent from all the actions that Gideon is undertaking. You see, in chapter 7, the Lord was directing Gideon. He was guiding Gideon. He was the one that, that led him to whittle down these soldiers. But in chapter 8, there's no mention of God as Gideon is waging this warfare against his countrymen. God gives no command to take any of these actions. And we're beginning to see this very important idea is coming into focus that as Gideon is ending his time as a judge, 
he totally ignores the Lord. He misses God, his will, and his direction as he's undertaking these actions. Now that Gideon has dealt with these men of these two cities, he once again turns his attention to the kings of Midian, whom he had captured. And in verses 18 through 21, Gideon's actions become very personal. This is a personal battle that he begins to wage. In verse 18, he asked the Midianite kings about some men who they killed at Tabor, and we discovered that these men were in Gideon's family. This is why he wants to pursue these kings. This is why he wants to go after them. Gideon is taking personal revenge. And he even asked his firstborn son to kill the kings, but Gideon's son was too fearful to do so. And these kings even called out Gideon's manhood. They knew Gideon as a person. They called out his manhood, and he responded by immediately killing them in return. And he takes some of their royal tokens. Gideon takes the crescent ornaments that are on the camel's necks. And what we see here in this word, in this ancient story, is the title of our message this morning. We see disappointing leadership. This section, taken together, all of chapter 8, shows us what disappointing leadership looks like. I draw your attention back to chapter 7, where God is constantly being called upon. God is constantly being consulted. His voice and his presence are clear. His will is being executed in chapter 7. But in chapter 8, we don't hear God's voice. His people and even his man Gideon does not turn to him to figure out how to conclude and wrap up this battle. Instead, he goes his own way. He kills and punishes all who are in his personal vendetta's path. And my question for you is, is this relatable? Have you ever done what Gideon does right here in this text? Have you ever known God's will and executed God's will but not too long after that, fail to be consistent and fail to continue to do God's will. Have you ever pursued God's will faithfully, but couldn't be consistent in that pursuit and eventually in some way turned away from God's direction? You see, I believe that Gideon's actions here in this text are so relatable to us. We, like Gideon, oftentimes know the Spirit's power but fail to use the Spirit's wisdom. This is disappointing leadership. Gideon is the exemplar of God to the people. Gideon was the one who broke down the altar of Baal in chapter 6. He did that great action. He undertook that great work. He had done mighty deeds for God. He took 300 soldiers and destroyed 135,000. He was mightily used of the Lord. But he is not consistent. You see, he turned to God in so many ways, but in the end, his sin nature was so deep And so insidious that even in victory, failure was not too far behind. And this makes sense to us. We do the same things that Gideon does. We are weak and frail creatures who find consistency 
hard to achieve. We know the danger of after having been used of God in some way to mouth humility, but to practice pride. We get this. This is us. We, in so many ways, are like Gideon. You see, one day, we are parting the Red Sea with a million of our countrymen walking on dry ground, and the next, we're striking the rock twice out of total disobedience to God, like Moses did. One day, we're a man after God's own heart, literally writing and creating scripture, and the next day, we commit adultery like David did. Or even we're like one of Jesus' disciples who, who was mightily used of God because he spoke with, with a tongue of fire and he proclaimed the gospel. He led Jesus' disciples. And then the next day, he was denying that he knew Christ. The next day, he was dishonoring God by withdrawing from fellowship with his fellow believers who were Gentile Christians. He withdrew from them. We're just like Peter. You see, one day we might do everything right and soon afterwards follow that up with disobedience to God and his commands. We feel this tension in our souls to be consistent and to be complete in our worship and our acknowledgement and our following of God. This passage teaches us that leaders can be sinful too. You see, this doesn't excuse the sins of leaders. This doesn't excuse the failings of leaders. Not at all. The Bible does not do that. But this should temper our expectations of our leaders. You see, I grew up in a church where the leaders in my life are pastoral staff. I grew up in a church with, with six pastors where those guys were put on a pedestal. They were elevated above the laity, above the, the common person in church. And because they were so elevated, it didn't take long before those men fell, before those men sinned, disobeyed God, and that fall was great because of the place that the people and they themselves had put themselves above others. This led to many massive falls in the church that I grew up in. Don't put your leaders on a pedestal. Don't worship men, even great men. Don't worship them. You see, Kevin, who is actually sick this morning, so unfortunately he's not going to hear these words in person, but he's probably watching on the live screen. Hey, Kevin. Kevin is a great pastor, but he makes a horrible God. And Daniel Espy is a great pastor, but he will make a miserable God. And Stephen is a great shepherd of God's people, but if you follow Stephen, you will be disappointed because he is not God. And as much as I try to lead you guys as well as I possibly can, if you put too much faith in me, too much emphasis in me as a person, I promise you, I will disappoint you. I will disappoint you much like Gideon it's disappointing the leaders that he is before in this passage. Your leaders will disappoint you because the scripture tells us in Romans chapter 3, this really simple verse that says, there is none righteous, 
No, not one. Not one. No, what you should do is you should temper your expectations. Keep high expectations of your leaders, but temper those expectations. And when you become, as you will, inevitably be drawn to despair because of your leaders, because of the failings that your leaders have, remember that you follow the leader of God's elect. You follow Jesus. Jesus never disappoints. He will never fail you. He is perfectly righteous in all of his actions, and he will never give you any reason to have a lack of confidence in who he is and what he wants to do in and through you in your life. You ultimately follow him. And all those other leaders are just under shepherds to the chief shepherd, to Jesus, our Lord. The only perfection of office is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you hold on to him, then you will be able to withstand the cynicism that inevitably will come from following men. Gideon was a disappointing leader. Gideon was acting like a king. You see, he let the warriors like a king would. And he commanded authority and dispensed justice, even though it was a, a disobedient form of justice, like a king would. He captured and killed the kings of Midian like one king would do to another who opposed his rule. Gideon even took the royal tokens of the kings of Midian as a king would gather the spoils of war to himself. We see Gideon acting like a king in verses 1 through 21, but now we're going to see how he responds to being asked to become Israel's king. His, Israel's king. Let's look at Gideon's legacy. My second point, my, I only have two points this morning. My second point is this, Gideon's legacy, verses 22 through 35. Verse 22 of the word says this. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you. And my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. We see Gideon's rule next. And the first thing he does is he rejects this royal authority. Immediately in verse 22, we see the people of Israel come to the natural conclusion that we have also come to this morning. They ask Gideon to rule over them and to become their king. And amazingly, we see that Gideon totally rejects this idea of being king outright. He says no. Even though him becoming king isn't disobedience to God. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, the law gives provision for Israel's kings. He could have become a king, but he said, nope, I don't want to become king at all. And it would seem as though this story is about to go in a positive direction. Because for the first time in chapter 8, we hear the mention of the Lord's name. We hear mention of God. And there seems to be... This hope yet for Gideon to seek the Lord and to follow his ways. But that hope quickly disappoints. And once again, we see disappointing leadership in Gideon. Gideon mouths faithfulness to God. But then he does something totally different. 
Most Christians know the struggle that is making our practice as good as our theology. This is what we see Gideon struggling with as well. He asked the people for all of the earrings from the spoils of war. He wanted more than just the Midianite king's crescent ornaments, as we saw earlier um, in the text. He wanted a royal share of the plunder. Gideon wanted a symbolic token of submission to him. And so this total collection of gold was about 50 pounds or so worth of gold in our current weights and measures. He had several crescent ornaments, the pennants, the collars from the camels. He had the purple garments from the kings. He was able to collect all these things from the people of Israel. And this was just this really impressive collection of the spoils of war. And what he did with all these things is he fashioned this ephod. Gideon fashioned and created this ephod. And the ephod was just a part of the high priest's garment. The high priest who would go before the people and make the sacrifices, that, that, that highest and most holy of Israel's leaders, the high priest would wear this elaborate clothing. And one part of that clothing would be the ephod, which is kind of like an apron. And so Gideon, he, he fashioned this, e, this ephod, and on the ephod you would have the, 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 the Urim and, and the, 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 the theorem. These are some really difficult words. You, you had these two lots, and these lots would be what the people, would, what the high priest would use to be able to determine the will of God and to determine what God's direction would be about a particular thing. And so Gideon made an ephod just like the ephod that God had commanded his people to create. And the amount of gold that they give Gideon, this 50 pounds worth of gold, suggests that this garment included some idolatrous image. It seems like Gideon wanted to establish a cult of personality, much like the other Canaanite kings around him. He glorified himself. This wasn't the ephod that God had commanded his children to create. He does this in Numbers 27, verse 21. That passage of scripture tells us about the one true ephod that the people were supposed to create. You see, Gideon wanted more than what God provided. God said, only make one. And here he was making a second. He was not content with God's provision of an ephod, but he decided that he needed another one. And in like manner, we also become discontent with what God has given us. We try to create more than what God has provided. We don't like to stay within the bounds that God has given us, but we want freedom and self-direction above all things, particularly in our culture. We want freedom and self-direction above all things. And this is exactly what Gideon wants as well. Why should he have to go to the high priest to be able to determine God's will? He'll just make his own ephod. He'll just make his own way to get to God. He'll use his own means to determine God's will. Why should he have to pursue the way that God directed him to? You see, we also, just like these people in this text, want to worship Baal, the Canaanite gods, and the true God. We feel this tension within us. And you might say, Theo, you know, this is, this is 2022. Like, we don't worship Baal. I don't even know who the Canaanite gods are. There's no way I worship an idol. I don't worship idols. But ultimately, this worship of idols was symbolic of what was going on in these people's hearts. These idols were physical tokens of what was actually going on on the inside 
of these people. And we worship the same gods that they worshiped back then. You see, they worship the god Baal. They worship the Ashtoreth. As we're going to see once we get to the end of this chapter, they're going to worship Baal Barith. And we worship the same gods that they do. You see, we worship sex just like they did. That's ultimately what they were worshiping when they worshiped these gods. And we worship self just like they did. That's ultimately what they worship when they fashioned this thing that looked like them. And we worship submission to peer pressure. That's ultimately what they did when they fashioned these gods is they just wanted to be like everybody else was, all the other people around them, all the other nations around them. And we worship stuff just like they did. And we worship success just like they did. And we worship satisfaction just like these people did. And we worship spirituality, just connecting with some higher power out there somewhere, just like they did. You see, these, these gods that they followed, although this is 2022, and we don't necessarily create a physical idol, ultimately the things that these people were pursuing are the exact same triggers of sin in our hearts as well. The exact same things that we worship, just like they did. We worship all of the same gods as the Israelites and the Canaanites around them did. And so we can understand where they're coming from. We also see royal authority revealed in Gideon. Not long after the creation of the ephod, Israel enjoyed significant peace. After being in constant fear and distress, they now enjoyed ease and calm. When we met Gideon, he was, he was trying to, to beat out the wheat in this wine press so that he could hide his produce from the, the pillaging hordes of Midian. He was trying to, to hide it because he knew that they were going to come and just ravage the land, take everything as much as they could. When we met him, he was under great stress, great distress. They were really terrified of the Midianites. But now, now that Gideon has, has waged this war, now they're going to enjoy peace. Now they're going to be in a place of ease. And the nation was in a completely different place at the end of these battles. For 40 years, from this point forward, for 40 years, Israel would enjoy peace. No warfare. No more Midianites to attack them. Unfortunately, from this point forward in the judge's narrative, we're going to see Israel never again attained rest. They had peace moving forward for 40 years, but they would never again get rest. Midian was never again in Scripture a great nation. We're not going to see Midian anymore as a great nation from this point in the Bible forward. For them, it's over. God totally conquered that great nation. To quote the Scripture, they raised their heads no more. And this whole idea, this struggle that we have with idols and, and even God, like, blessing them by giving them peace, I mean, like, we're about to see that, that they're about to be completely disobedient to God. But for 40 years, God's going to give them peace. Like, can you reconcile that in your mind? 
The fact that, that God knows what they're about to do to him in just a couple of verses, and yet he still gives them peace. This is like, this is radical love from God. Radical grace. And this reminds me of some words that Charles Spurgeon once said. He said, it is a wonderful thing that even if you have been a prodigal and have spent your living with harlots, yet if you are his child, you may call him father. Did not the prodigal say, father, I have sinned. There is good pleading in this fact, for you are not unchilded even by your sin. And we see the tenderness of God and his mercy despite all of their rebellion. We are not unchilded even when we sin. We can still call God Father. God's grace is always active, even when we don't perform his will the way we should. In utter contradiction, to Gideon's words where he said, I will not be king. God will be your king. He begins to live like a king. You see, Gideon leads the people religiously like a king would. He has a large harem like a king. A harem is just a collection of wives and concubines. He had this large collection of wives and concubines, just like the Canaanite kings would have. He has a son who tries to create a dynasty like a king would have. One of his sons is even named Abimelech, which means my father is king. He dies in in good old age, the scripture tells us here. He's even buried in a tomb. He has a dignified burial, a dignified death. Gideon lived a good kingly life, and the people of Israel also prospered and enjoyed peace all of Gideon's days. But the Israelites handled peace just like we do. You see, when given prosperity and happiness and good things, they use those things to sin against God. When given ease and comfort, they use those things to turn away from God. The scripture says they hoard after the ephod and they worshiped it Instead of God. Verse 27. The people prostituted themselves. This ephah was a snare to Gideon and his whole family. They all turned aside from God, the one true God, to worship another God. They once again cheated on God. They forgot him and they forsook him. They had no loyalty to him. And even their knowledge of him, that intimate knowledge that they had of God, exercised no control over their actions. This is a picture of unfaithfulness and spiritual adultery. And as with the leaders, as with Gideon and his family, so with the people. So with the people. You see, Gideon compromised, and the people followed his compromise in verses 33 and 34. 
Immediately after Gideon's death, the Israelites plunged headfirst into idol worship and once again followed the Baals. To make matters worse, they even created a new idol. They made a new god. They made Baal Bereth their god. And in Hebrew, Baal Bereth, Baal means Lord, and Bereth means covenant. So this new god that they made was Lord of the Covenant. And they could not have disrespected and dishonored God any more than by naming this new God, this name that they had given him, which was a total mockery of the one true God, the real God. You see, in worshiping this God by all bereath, Israel rejected covenant faithfulness to their God, Yahweh. In another twist, the place where they worshiped this God, Shechem, there in your Bibles, was the same place where at the end of the book of Joshua, the Israelites renewed their covenant to the Lord and promised that they would never again forsake him. Joshua 24. That's the same place where they are, where they made this new God. Well, when we went through the book of Joshua a couple months ago, we saw that they said, God, we promised we were never going to turn away from you. And that's exactly what they do here. And I hope that I hope that you feel how this applies to us today. I hope that, that, that God is, like, is stirring your affections because these words should really in a powerful way help us to understand our hearts and the desire that God wants of us. And so I just want to pull a few things out of this passage of Scripture for our edification and admonishment as we begin to conclude the message this morning. Number one, it is difficult to finish well. Man, the first thing is it is difficult to finish well. We see this time and time again in Scripture, and we see this time and time again in life. It is difficult to finish well. It's strenuous. Do you remember the end of the Apostle Paul's life? That great believer in Christ, the Apostle Paul? He recounts to one of his disciples, Timothy, towards the end of his life about his missionary companions, Paul says this in one of the last letters that he wrote. He says, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Christians has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Alexander, the coppersmith, did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Man, this great man found it so difficult for his friends to finish well. After he had led them all over the world preaching the gospel of Christ, they forsook him anyway in the end. It is so hard to finish well. And in 2 Samuel, Scripture tells us that David took a census, which was in total disobedience to God. In that very last chapter of 2 Samuel, the conclusion to David's story, he takes a census. His commander asked him not to do it. The commander knew it was disobedience to God, and David stubbornly did it anyway. 
He numbered the people, and because of his sin, 70,000 people died by the Lord. David did not finish as well as he could have because it is difficult to finish well. And we could even look at, at a person in more modern times. One of the great heroes of the Christian church, John Wesley, he founded the Methodist church. And John Wesley was actually able to bring revival to the Church of England by creating the Methodist Church. He traveled over 4,000 miles every year preaching the gospel. He preached over 40,000 sermons, John Wesley did. And he even wrote a very popular medical book that people in the current times still find good advice from and still get usefulness out of. John Wesley, despite all of these great things, was very discontent in his marriage, and he was very unhappily married. He was by no means the biblical example of a husband, and he never became a father, unfortunately. And the way his contemporaries wrote about his wife puts tremendous disrespect on John Wesley himself because they clearly got the information that they got about her from him. And as great as he was and as great of a legacy as he has left we sing many of his songs in our church, and in so many ways, he's left a very strong, powerful mark on the church universal. He found it really difficult to finish well. It is difficult to finish well. And you could probably come up with your own examples, can't you? Like, you know Christians or believers, people who proclaim Christ but who found it difficult to finish their lives by following him. We could all come up with examples like that. That there have been people who have professed faith in Christ and yet turned their back on him in some action, but who otherwise seem to us to be sincere. It is difficult to finish well. But number two, grace is always present. Grace is always present. I hope you're aware of your weakness and your sinfulness and that bend that you have towards sin. Even the greatest among us, even the Apostle Paul, who literally wrote two-thirds in the New Testament, even he said in Romans chapter 7, wretched man that I am. We will call him the greatest of men, and he says, wretched man that I am. We are all in need desperately of God's grace. Your merit, your goodness, the things that you do every day, they don't qualify you to get to God. You see, his merit qualifies you to get to him. What you need is you need an alien righteousness. You need, you need righteousness and purity from outside of you to be applied to your account. You need to have the perfect purity of Christ. And you need to draw from a bank account with no end to the zeros. That's the type of credit you need to be able to get to God. You need the gospel. And this is the gospel. The gospel says that failure is certain. Your failure, my failure, our failure is certain. But failure isn't final for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not final for the, for the believer. You see, Jesus came to this earth for people like us. 
He came for religious sinners. He came for moral sinners. We all will fail the king of kings. But God has not left us to himself. Grace is always present. God blesses us despite us. He does this for his great name's sake. This is why he blesses his people. And maybe you remember John chapter 4, the story of the woman at the well. You see, she was a Samaritan woman, and these Samaritans were half Jewish, half Gentiles. To to those who were Jews in Jesus' day, they were half-breeds, and the faith that they practiced was heresy. They actually uh, changed the first five books of the Bible. They didn't believe in any of the words of the prophets, and they had this totally different version of God's word. And so the Jews in Jesus' day hated the Samaritans. They despised the Samaritans. And so in John chapter 4, when we read this passage, this just becomes so real and so powerful for us. Because despite the hatred that the Jews have for the Samaritans, the word says, and he, Jesus, had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, what we would call noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, you have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, she's beginning to get it now. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And to... Take the attention off of herself, she says. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, he goes with her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. 
But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. You see, the Samaritans did things half right, just like Gideon did. The Israelites in Judges chapter 8 wanted to worship God and Baal. They wanted to have their feet in both worlds. They were, they were just like us. They were just like me my freshman year of college. Wanted to have their feet in both worlds. And trying to be faithful to God, they were becoming just like all the other peoples that they were around. And so we see Jesus, our Lord, reaching out to those who are straying. He reaches out to this woman caught in sexual sin. He reaches out to compromisers. Those are the types of people that Jesus is seeking and trying to bring into the fold of his sheep. I love this, this quote from uh, this book called Gentle and Lowly. Uh, that Kevin and Fetterman and David are taking us through on the podcast. And Jensen Lowly, the book says, he's on your side. He sides with you against your sin, not against you because of your sin. He hates sin, but he loves you. And Hosea Chapter 11, the word says, beginning of verse 7, My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zebram? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. God looks on his people and all of their moral manure and decides to love them anyway. They have proven their waywardness over and over again. They are fully, this word here in Hosea says, bent on going away from God. And yet, God is still the Holy One who will not come in wrath. This is shocking news. This is good news. This is the gospel. Jesus has come to call sinners to himself. 
This woman at the well, he, he could have offered anything to her. And what does he offer her? He offers her himself. He says, I am the living water. I'm what you need. This physical stuff is going to make you thirsty again, but he will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life if you will trust in him. And she does that, and she gets it. And she becomes so excited that, that she can't help but to tell other people about him. And she goes back into the town and compels everybody to come and meet a man who told her everything she'd ever done and who loved her anyway, loved her despite her, loved her because he is love. He is the definition of love. You see, the sinfulness and the weakness and the failings of God's people open the floodgates of his heart of compassion towards us. And again, gentle and lowly says, the dam breaks. It is not our loveliness that wins his love. It is our unloveliness. 